Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Well, it's Tuesday, and I gotta admit that it is kind of a hassle having to have all the security and the policemen and everybody here, and then, of course, the rolling out of the red carpet, and then having to furnish hors d'oeuvres and all the delectable delights for his staff as they come in. Dr. History, boy, it's hard to have you here every week. Well, you know, and keeping the TV cameras away. Yeah, it's tough. You know, but, you know. Fox News, MSNBC. Yeah, we'll just put up with it. I mean, after, and then all the autograph secrets. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but I, yeah. I try to autograph everybody that asks I me. I know, standing so, on my front porch, and I don't get any money for and it. And the next autograph will be the, let's see, the first one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what so, are we going to talk about Well, today? before I start, I got an email this morning from Aaron Broglin and his family back in Detroit. They made it out west, and uh, his daughter, uh, or I mean his wife, Zaruhi, uh, daughter Sose, other daughter Sona, and young son Armin from Detroit. And they made it out here, but they weren't, they didn't have enough time to head over this direction, but they made it up to, I think, to the Custer Battlefield. So glad they had a great trip. You know, this is the couple or the family that you had talked about two months ago. Yeah, the Armenian family. Yeah. So they made it out here, had a great trip, they said. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Zeb, as you think of animals that had a uh, huge part settling the West, tell me your. Uh, who do you think? Tom? Oh, I, there's no question. What? The horse. Okay, keep going. What do you mean, keep going? Uh, add another one down. Uh, another one. animal? Yeah. Oxen. Uh, okay, keep going. Uh, cattle. <laughs> uh, smaller. Much smaller. Smaller? Uh, if you say a kitty cat, I'm going to turn this program off. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you. Okay. Beaver. Beaver. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Think yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, biologically, the beaver is a rodent. It's the largest of its species found on the North American continent. Uh, How do you feel about knowing that everything you've worn on your head for cowboy hats has been a rodent? Been a rodent, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, most people think of uh, uh, beaver as a, an inhabitant of the remote mountain meadows, you know, along the streams from the, uh, you know, around here. But actually, they are as far north as the Arctic Ocean, clear as far south to the Gulf of California. And usually he builds his logs in a quiet pond, but if the stream is too large or too swift to be dammed, he will make his home by tunneling into the shores of the river, and those are called bank beavers. I didn't know so that. They would actually, I didn't know that either. There's two different kinds? I guess. Well, I think they're the same thing, but depending on where they're at, they will uh, burrow into the bank of a river. I did not know that. Yeah. Now, his food is primarily the bark of the aspen, the poplar, cottonwood, and willow. He loves to dam irrigation ditches and eat sugar beets. Bet you'd never heard that before. I did. (laughs) Eating sugar beets. But he is a home lover, a conservationist, a pacifist, but he can defend himself when need be uh, because you think about those long chisel-like teeth that are capable of cutting through a four-inch aspen in 15 minutes. You've got to be kidding Or, get this one, Zeb, downing a tree five feet thick and 100 feet tall in one night. Um, one co- night. One beaver? Yeah, one beaver. You got to so be kidding. So y- you don't want to put your hand out to pet that little uh, cute little beaver, right? Whoa. Now, excluding man, his only natural enemies are the grizzly bear and the wolverine, and both of whom he can get away from by jumping 
just getting into the water. And when they attempt to dig into his lodge from above, as they sometimes have been known to do, he has two underwater escape hatches. And should the season be winter, he has taken the precaution of coating the exposed portion portion of his lodge with wet mud just before freezing weather came, making it like concrete. That you, uh, a grizzly bear or wolverine could not uh, penetrate that that almost cement-like top of the beaver pond. Okay. The, uh, so, But anyway, when full-grown, he weighs an average 40 pounds. Uh, sometimes his weight will top 100 pounds. Wait a minute. 100 pounds. That is a big <laughs> now, rodent. In my mind, I always considered a beaver maybe oh, about twice as big as a jackrabbit or something. You know, yeah, I'm I was thinking about big. 25 pounds maximum. Yeah. But uh, a hundred pound beaver, pounds, yeah, and uh, the, uh, his lifespan might be fifteen years. He will measure three or four feet long from nose to the tail tip, and one third of this length is the tail. So, See, now so I was thinking feet. that most beavers were maybe about uh, oh eighteen to twenty four inches, and that's long. what I had pictured, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, his hind feet are webbed. His fore feet are actually a lot like human hands, and he can stay underwater for fifteen minutes at a stretch. He mates for life, and except for a brief period when his mate runs him out of the house as she prepares to have a new batch of, they call them kittens. They call those kittens. Yeah, huh? the, the new, new ones are called I'm kittens. I'm learning everything about beavers I didn't know. Yeah, me too. But since his safety depends upon both entrances to his lodge being underwater, while its interior remains high and dry, and he must stabilize the level of his pond. So he builds dams. I mean, we know that. Uh, naturalists say it is instinct and not intelligence that causes him to do this. But the results in controlling stream flow and creating pools to benefit fish and wildlife, I mean, to me, that's intelligence. Does the beaver congregate with other beavers to yes. build these dams? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to mention that. Oh. Most dams are only four or five feet high and maybe 20 or 30 feet long, but some have been found 12 feet or more high and up to 2,000 feet long. Wait a minute. 2,000. That's 2,000 feet? Yeah. And, but like human dams, the larger ones represent the work of cooperating beaver. So it's not just one. It, so now you talk about intelligence, okay? So evidently they know that uh, numbers, they can build a, a larger. Why did they build the dams in the first place? To keep the water level at the right level. For their home. For their home, yeah. For the, yeah. So when the stream flow dwindles and the pond shows... I haven't had a chance to visit with any of them, so I <laughs> well, didn't know. You know, that yeah. put that on your list. Yeah. So... When the stream flow dwindles and the pond shows signs of running dry, the beaver have been known to dig long canals to other sources of water. Sometimes they use these canals to transport logs that are too heavy to be carried. On occasion, there are <clears throat> there are primitive lock systems in the canals. So wait a minute. You're telling me that these beavers have the instinct and the knowledge to go look at a tree and say, okay, Fred, come help me. We're going to take this over here to this stream. Somehow. Somehow, yeah. Now, right here where we live in the Snake River country, when the white man came, trapping beaver was pretty much unknown to the Indians. 
Okay, if they wanted to kill the animal, they had to catch it out of the water, which was not easy, uh, because the beaver works mostly at night, and or they would have to plug both exits to its lodge uh, with the beaver inside, then chop through the tough five-inch layer of mud and sticks from the top, and there again, that's hard work. So as a consequence, few Indians depended on beaver for fur or food before the white man came. Now, afterwards, few had the patience or the ambition to learn trapping, white man style, uh, nor could they acquire the expensive traps with which to pursue the trade unless they stole from the whites, no the, the Indians. So, uh, and they sometimes did that. But uh, a full-grown beaver is a powerful animal. It takes a strong trap to hold him. Really? Okay. One constant complaint expressed by the Hudson's Bay Company men was that the iron in the traps furnished them was inferior to that in the traps used by their American competitors. Okay. Now, since a beaver caught by a leg invariably would actually gnaw off the leg to free himself if given the opportunity, so it took an expert to set the trap in such a way that the animal's struggles would pull it into deep water where it would then drown. Because mm. I mentioned they can only stand water about 15 minutes. Yeah. So, now this meant that... Which, the, is, which is 14 more minutes than me and you. I. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this meant that the trapper must set his set uh, along natural beaver pathways in water a few inches deep, then wade into deeper water, drive in a strong pole uh, through the ring at the end of this of five-foot chain, and make sure that the pole would hold. Now, each trap weighed about five pounds, so even in early fall and late spring, the mountain streams were cold. In winter, they were even colder. Uh, and picture this, they've got their sacks, their traps, a gun, a hatchet, and then they were staying in this icy cold water most of the working day and constantly watching out for hostile Indians. Let me ask you, would beavers attack human beings? You know, I don't know that. I'm only going to think that if they were cornered, maybe. Kind of but like I would, a rat. Yeah, I, I would think they would not. Yeah. Oh. But, uh, you know, one authority estimates that four years was the average lifespan of a trapper in the western wilderness. Peter Skeen Ogden, which you know, I know you've heard of him. Yeah, I have. A Hudson's Bay Company uh, wrote, quote, A convict in Botany Bay is a gentleman living at ease compared to a trapper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so being in jail is easier than being a trapper. That had to be a tough life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, the average price paid the trapper for a prime beaver pelt. They call them a plew. P-L-E-W. And, uh, the pelt? Yeah, the pelt. They call it a beaver plew. I didn't know that. I, and I didn't either. The, so how much the, did they get back there? They got $6 by American traders, but only $2.50 by the British. Now, because of the... See, dur- I'm telling you, those <laughs> cheapskates. <laughs> but, you know, because of the durability of a properly cured skin, and what they would do, Zeb, is they would uh, c- uh, cut off the coarse outer hairs so they could get to the under fur, which was uh, in demand. That, that's what they used for hats and, and clothes, uh, coats and things like that. Now, each time the plew or the pelt was traded or processed, its price went up, and the lowly trapper making a bare living wage. And, of course, the few at the top of the pyramid, they got the fortunes. Uh, John Jacob Astor, William Henry Ashley, and they 
they turned uh, termed the the beaver pelt. They called it the gold skin because of the money they made off. What of did that. they make off of the pelts? You know, I don't know. By the time it finally reached the market or whatever, uh, I don't know what they finally got out of that. Yeah. But the Hudson's Bay Company is said to have paid its stockholders. <clears throat> Uh, 40% annual dividends. Now, the basic ground rule of the British-American conflict for beaver in the Snake River country, right, right here where we're at, was, quote, use any means short of violence to get beaver. Okay. Now, the Americans encouraged defection of Hudson's Bay Company employees by paying higher prices for the pelts. So if you can get five, six bucks rather than two fifty, you're going to go where yeah, go you can get the most. And money. six dollars then, oh. probably back in the 1840s, was like what? Oh, sixty, seventy dollars today. At least, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the British complained that the Americans were not gentlemen. But I'm not standing in any cold water. <laughs> Me neither. The Americans accused the British of inciting Indians to attack their trapping parties, which was quite the contrary, because the British said they pointed out that several times they had protected. American trappers and punished Indians who stole from them. Now, for the British guy, Peter Skeen Ogden, who had been born a gentleman but became the toughest, most durable field man the Hudson's Bay Company had, he took the brunt of the conflict. Now, picture this, Zeb. He's a short, stocky, powerful man. He was a veteran of Canada's bitter fur company wars. Whatever Ogden's good or bad qualities were, his loyalty to the company was complete. He was loyal to the Hudson's Bay. Hmm. Now, uh, running into a party of American trappers in the Blackfoot River country, which is over southeastern Idaho, in 1825, Ogden confided to his journal, quote, We must endeavor to annoy them as much as we possibly can. <laughs> we will try to get them to steer another course. <laughs> the Americans have taken nearly all the beaver, they are a selfish lot. They leave nothing for their friends. We act differently. I, you know, the language that was used in those days was so eloquent. It, and it was. Really, like, we want to annoy them. Yeah. I mean, I, I we, love... We hear her say something a little different. I, I know. And <laughs> I, I love reading their actual words. Oh. But, you know, each year the traps, the gunpowder, the salt, sugar, alcohol, and other necessities were purchased on credit in St. Louis and transported by mule or horse to some spot of a rendezvous in uh, the mountains. And they're the free trappers that weren't working for anybody, you know. Uh, and the Indians traded in the furs they had gathered for the supplies they needed for the coming year. And usually the free trappers ended up in debt to the traders, a debt hopefully to be paid in uh, furs at the next rendezvous. Now, how many beaver pelts on an average could a trapper get during a season? You know, I don't... Or did get. I don't know. I mean, uh, all I can say is you see pictures of them with a couple of pack horses loaded with fur. So, yeah. I, I, I'm i only going to guess. 100, 200? I, I don't know. I don't either. But, you know, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the rendezvous real quick. Oh, they had fun. They had a good time. They sold their furs. They replenished their supplies. The fur companies uh, gave them everything they needed. Uh, a rendezvous was a lively, joyous place. That's where, a polite way to say it. And all were allowed, fur trappers, Indians, native trapper wives, children, travelers, and get this, Eb, even tourists. Tourists from Europe would venture out to watch and observe what happened on this at these. Really? Yeah. Oh, what's, so, what happens in Vegas stays in yeah. Vegas. <laughs> so, 
<coughs> Sorry, uh, a few of the places that they had rendezvous in 1825, McKinnon, Wyoming, was actually the first rendezvous of white traders in the Rocky Mountains. McKinnon. McKinnon. I'm not aware of where that is. Uh, You know, I'm not sure either. Um, Well, I know that we had one right here, a big one. It says it's along the Henry's Fork. Oh, okay. Um, That must be up by Dubois in that area? Somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. But then uh, 1826 at Cache Valley, Utah, you know where that is. And Bear Lake was another place. Lander, Wyoming. Over by Preston, too, wasn't there? Riverton, Wyoming. Pierre's Hole. Uh, so there was, you know, they ha- had them in different places. But I think we've got time. I want to tell one more quick story. Go, go ahead. Okay. Uh, John Coulter. John. I remember him. John Coulter uh, with his companion, Potts. They were in canoes, and they were proceeding up uh, the Jefferson River in search of beaver. And they reached in their own canoe when a war party of about 800 Blackfeet Indians suddenly appeared on shore. Now, picture this. They're both out in their canoes. Potts is still in his canoe. And uh, he figured probably things were not going to go well. So he leveled his rifle and shot an Indian that was on shore. This might not have been a good not, move. Not, not a good yeah. thing. So anyway... Coulter came to shore that he'd expected they'd just kill him right there and then. But they pulled him aside. Uh, a council was held. Uh, one of the chiefs pointed to the prairie and motioned with his hand, saying in the Crow language, go, go away. Kind of kind of waving. What happened to Potts, though? Oh, he's dead. Well, they got him. Oh, yeah. Once once he killed that Indian, he was he was uh, pretty much totally... He was ventilated with arrows. He, he, and, yeah, he was gone. He was I done. See. So, anyway, when he'd gone a distance of about 100 yards, uh, uh, Coulter saw these younger Indians kind of taking off their blankets, their leggings, uh, like they were getting ready for a race. Uh-oh. And he was to run a race of which the prize was to be his life and his scalp. John Coulter. Now... The Madison River, the Madison Fork, lay directly before him five miles away. All right? One, they took off, running. Coulter, you can imagine how fast you'd run knowing. Now, I hate to mention this, but at this point, Coulter had been removed of any outer... Clothing. He was naked. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> but he was running barefoot. <laughs> well, and more. And more. So he was going. I mean, he was moving. And you can imagine. In that cold temperature, oh, you think it's wise to stand still? No, no. And uh, blood was coming from his nose. I mean, he was oh. going, you know. And he was outdistancing everybody except one Indian. One, one solitary one. Indian. And he was approaching. He had a spear in his hand and a blanket. And just before he caught up with Coulter, Coulter stopped, turned around, grabbed him, threw him to the ground, and uh, dispatched him. In other words, killed him. Adios. But the, the spear had been broken in half at that point. But so now he's got a blanket and this half spear, and he keeps running. And this is where it gets uh, when I'm talking about the beaver dams. So he reached the goal of the Madison River at the end of five miles, and he plunged into the river, and, oh. and he found a beaver house, a beaver dam. Uh, uh, about 10 feet above the surface of the water. So he dove under the water and came up inside 
the beaver dam. It was dry and it was comfortable. So he just hung out in there. Well, the Indians came up and they stood on the top of the beaver dam. Uh, he thought they might break it open or set it on fire. Did they know he was in there? No, they didn't know. They I probably thought he could be, but anyway, uh, you know, the, the beaver house is divided into stories so that you can sit in there dry w- without being in the water. So anyway, um, he uh, they finally left. And he came out, he still had the blanket, and he made his way towards a place called Manuel's Fort on the Bighorn, 300 miles that he went. He was eating roots, uh, the bark of trees, for 11 days. Uh, he reached the fort, obviously tired, hungry. Uh, his only clothing was the Indian blanket, and the only weapon was the spear that he'd brought uh, with him. And that's the story of John Colton. Now, I have a question for you. Okay. And you know me, I'm always a little cynical. I know. How do we know that's verifiable fact? Because it says right here in this book. <laughs> And, uh, you know, this is a uh, John Coulter was a pretty amazing mountain man. Yeah. I mean, this is just one of his uh, adventures. But, uh, yeah, Coulter now. He was the first streaker. Yes. And some claim that he in, he discovered Yellowstone, but he did not. Now, uh, he discovered a place they called Coulter's Hell, which was like a hot pool or hot pot or something, but there was another guy, and I, his name escapes me right now, that actually was the first white man into Yellowstone no that kidding. discovered it. Yeah, really. So that's how the beaver ties in with John Coulter. Wow. Saved his life. I'll tell you what, that was a great story, and and uh, thus came the song, Here He Comes, Look at That, Look at That, look that's at that. the streak. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Anyway, another story of beavers and John there Coulter you go. and the rendezvous. Oh, Dr. History heard in all parts of the world, foreign countries, tuning in every day, sick people in hospitals across the country listen to him. Wow. And people in Detroit. There you go. Thank you, Doc. You bet.